Welcome everyone. Uh, this is uh, Class Disrupted, Season 3, Episode 1. We're excited to be doing this with you. Hey, Michael. Hey, Diane. It's good to see you actually in person. It's so weird <laughs> so wonderful at the same time. We're having a blast being amongst people, friends out there in the audience, and, and actually getting to do this and have a conversation. And as you know, Diane, we started this podcast originally, and, and this session today as an outgrowth of that, uh, really as the pandemic set in, trying to help parents and educators make sense of all these changes going around them, but also take a pause and do something about them to transform schooling more broadly. Uh, indeed, Michael. And I think when we first started at the beginning of the pandemic, we were both really hopeful that we would see this as a catalyst for some big change right out of the gate. We spent most of last season just sort of tracking as people were just trying to like make it through. But as we launched this third season, I think we have that hope back again that, uh, you know, we might we might see some of the change we've been both advocating for for a while. Yeah. And so as we explore these and we're going to be dedicated, obviously, in each episode, we have different things that we want to hone in on and amplify more for folks. Uh, we thought we would start today with a question of what's on your back-to-school shopping list. And that may sound like a bit of a bizarre question, but it occurred to us as we were planning for this uh, that school leaders across the country right now in very different circumstances, and we know things are still not back to quote-unquote normal by any stretch of the imagination, uh, are going to be looking for different things to help them through. And at, at a conference like this at the ASU GSV Summit, thinking about what are those things that you would like to be able to buy? And where's the market stepping up and delivering versus maybe not would be a worthwhile conversation to have. So with that as prelude, let's dive in. What 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 is on your list? I'm dying to know what are the what are the pain points? Well, Michael, um you know, I think all good lists are made on pink post-it notes. So I've got my top five here uh, that I want to share with you, and I'm super curious to hear what you think about these. Um so number one uh, has to be, in my view, um, any system school district that doesn't yet have one-to-one -one devices and bandwidth at home for kids, that's got to be the top of the list. And I think a lot of us are there, and the pandemic certainly was a catalyst. And, the, you know, we started Class Disrupted by talking to Evan Marwell about this. And I'm really excited. I think we've made significant progress in the last 18 months. But for those who aren't there yet, you got to go number one, baseline. Every kid needs a device. Every kid needs bandwidth. And, and I do think that it's fundamentally different, right? We, we know that we're still not where we need to be by any stretch of the imagination, but it feels attainable, as in the technology is clearly there. It exists. Um, we know what we need to do. Uh, there are dollars likely moving through the stimulus right now to help it. Uh, as, as we know, you know, the Senate voted literally this morning on the trillion dollar stimulus. And so there is progression, I think, against that. I, I, I am more optimistic, I think, than I was even six months ago uh, on this count. Yeah, I am too. And I will say as a system that's been there for quite some time, I, I just think it's table stakes for what we need to do and how we need to edit. This is paper, pencil, textbook in this modern. I, it, and it's actually just to double click on that before we go on your second point, because 
I, I do think that there's been an evolution on this and certainly in my own view, but I think in the views of many, which is it's kind of the trapper keeper, right? Of the 21st century. You just, you, it just, it's just table stakes. And yeah, that actually means a lot of individuals will pay for it, but where they can't, the school systems need to step up uh, and, and provide it because it's just awfully hard to function in, in today's society. world without it yeah. like, for their parents, let alone them as students trying to figure out how to succeed in this society. Indeed. Indeed. So that's number one. All right. So what's on, what's number okay, two on your list? Number two is, um, are, I'm going to call this loosely tools. Here's what I'm looking for. Um, tools to support social, emotional learning and development. But, but let me just be, I have some very specific criteria right. here. So one, these tools need to really bring together the science of learning and development and human development. They need to integrate them. Um, you know, that science in a way that really is, is trauma informed, that's centering students of color, um, that are, makes it easy to incorporate in the day to day lives and routines of teachers and students at school, and that um, help with connectivity and connection, human connection. Um, you know, and I, I'm not confused by tools that sort of like got the SEL stickers slapped on them because that's the hot new term. Like um, we need, we need supports that really help people translate that science into practice in a very pragmatic and practical way. So I want to dig a little bit deeper on this because I think there, there are tools out there and sort of curriculums, as you said, right. Yeah. For, tra- for trauma, for example. Yeah. Right. Um, there, there are good online curriculum uh, for, for a variety of these things. Ripple effects come to mind, mm-hmm. some of these others. There's interesting programs out there. Uh, Sewn to Grow, I think, is one that that uh, helps you set goals, right, and do right. some of this uh, more on the habits of success side, perhaps. Yeah. Um, but it sounds like you're saying actually integrated with the day-to-day routines of the classroom itself, if I'm understanding you correctly. I think that's right. And the, and the interactions, you know, we've talked a lot about how we think time needs to re- be repurposed and reused. And so um, thinking more broadly about the experiences in community and in school on a daily basis, look, we've all read the reports, like hundreds and thousands of kids lost to the system over the last 18 months. Well, well, they're lost because they have no connection. They have no human connection. And so I want to push us to be thinking about social emotional development in the context of relationship and connection. Yeah. And it's not something that the market, I think, has good answers for today. I'm curious, uh, as you think about it, are these going to be interwoven into the curricular tools themselves? Do they stand apart? Are they about setting up systems and routines? Like, where does this sit as I think about it as a teacher or an administrator trying to figure out how to even integrate this idea. Yeah, I do think that um, the, the integration into curriculum, certainly some of this should live there, but that's not where I'm looking right mm-hmm. now. I'm looking for how am I structuring my time, okay. my experience on a day-to-day basis? How am I working that into a routine that ultimately builds relationship, connection, and skill? All right, so if we felt good on the first, I think we both feel like there's a huge hole in the second and probably a lot of definition and work to do with listening to teachers to understand what is the need. I think that's right. All right, so number three. All right, number three, okay. I'm just gonna remind us of what a technology is, the definition before I, I ask for this one, all right? All right. You might be like, what are you talking about? Um, and uh, a technology is the application of scientific knowledge to a practical you know, 
problem or application. So I'm shopping for a new grading policy. A new grading policy. <laughs> Say more. Um, so, uh, you know, a number of people have been working for a number of years on sort of thinking about whether it be graduate profiles or mastery transcripts or things like that. Um, and what folks are going for there is the right idea. They're going for, you know, actually measuring mastery versus sort of, you know, a snapshot in time. Did you learn this in this moment at this and time? And by the way, it might conflate whether totally. you were on time, if you right. turned in your homework, et cetera. Exactly. So. And so we're going in the right direction there. But what we are missing is in the practical running of a school district, a school network, a school, what really dominates is the grading policy. And this is one of those structural elements of education that is deeply flawed mm -hmm. and needs to be rethought. So whether any of us like it or not, we are still in an A to F system in this country, um, a system that drives all of the wrong behaviors around all kids actually learning and mastering important skills and concepts. It's one of the most inequitable parts of our system um, where a certain small number of kids actually benefit from other kids not learning and getting lower grades. Um, and so I want a grading policy that actually can be implemented school-wide, system-wide, network-wide, connected to higher ed, that will drive the right behaviors that people will buy into. Like, we need the full new policy. Well, and so that seems like the really interesting part. And just as I, I, so first, let me reflect on the market. I think that there's things out there that could do aspects of what you're saying, but not the whole. I, I think particularly like Mastery Track, incredible tool to help an individual teacher even move to a mastery-based system. Mastery Transcript Consortium, mm -hmm. really representing a student's achievements in a mastery-based way and showing the portfolio of work for college purposes. Um, jump rope, things like, there's things out there that that start to get at this, but it sounds like you're, you're going after a much bigger hole um, of, of replacing really that grades for parents. It, it's interesting, I wanna tell you a story that um, that I had an experience with recently and, and just sort of get your take on it. And it, 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 it was from, so I, I, this is not my first in-person conference since the pandemic. I have to be honest here. First one was in Boston. It was learn launch. We had a little consultancy. Um, I feel like I'm admit, admitting something, <laughs> I know, I'm right? Like, Were you cheating? Yeah, exactly. Right. So the, but the, um, so we did these consultancies with superintendents and principals and one was a, a school, uh, from a relatively well-off community in Massachusetts that had moved to mastery based or standards based grading. Mm -hmm. Um, and there was rebellion from certain families mm -hmm. because they didn't understand it. It was complicated. It was in a middle school and they felt like when they get to high school, you're going to have to go to real real grades, yep. quote unquote, and colleges won't know what to do with this system and the whole thing yes. that you've heard before. Um, and I guess a takeaway I had was like grading, it needs to be changed, but it should be on the back end of a longer change management process of, of moving to mastery based and so forth first, because it's so unfamiliar to parents. It's like organ rejection almost. And so how do we deal? Will, you, will your tool help us tackle that? Or like, how do we deal with that? Well, and I think that's what I'm looking for when I'm talking about um, a grading policy as the technology, mm -hmm. which is the full infrastructure. Because I think that what we both know is when you just 
rip something out and you don't have something compelling to replace it, that's not change yep. and it's not going to stick. Um, and also when you bring a tool in that sort of sits outside or on the edges or still has to be translated into grades, you're not actually making the, the systemic change the that you need, the structural need. change that needs to, to happen. And so um, that's why in my mind, when I dig in, um, it's the policy aspect. So, you know, as you know, we've developed a mastery-based assessment system that we've been using for 10 years now. It still gets manually translated into an A to into F system ATF. so our yeah. kids can get into college. And so I'm pushing myself to think about how, how do we take the next step? So interesting. I, w one more on this just to sort of dimensionalize it, which is a story I told you last night when we were talking about this, which is um, I, I was... Uh, reading recently a, a story of someone who had pulled their school, uh, their child out of the school system yeah. because um, they had some learning challenges and uh, the when, when when the pandemic hit and they saw particularly hard of hearing was the um, issue and the remote schooling experience was just a non-starter in terms of being able to translate and make it work. And so when the parent was trying to find a curriculum for this fifth grader, uh, who had gotten A's their entire life in math and so forth uh, and went to find a fifth grade math curriculum. First, they did some diagnostics and the diagnostics repeatedly from multiple sources showed this student is actually at a third or fourth grade level of math. And so parent called the teacher and said, what's going on? And they said, oh, this is the grading scale for students with learning difficulties. And on that dimension, she's getting an A. And I was just thinking, holy cow, we've got a lot of work to do. Well, I think what you're surfacing in that story, Michael, is the pervasive problem, which is the ADA of system isn't actually giving anyone good information. Um, and it's, it's um, pointing a bunch of people in the wrong direction and giving them bad data and bad information that they're acting on. And, um, you know, it, what's interesting is there's, there's a lot of work on the other side from folks who are trying to engage with parents where the school will say, you know, we don't, we don't, we can't actually tell parents and get them to understand when their children aren't performing. So it goes both directions. Yeah. And I think rather than assuming it's flaws in all the humans, I think there's a flaw in the system. In the system itself. Well, as, as my mentor, uh, Clay Christensen always used to say, it's rarely dumb people deciding to do dumb things. It's normally dumb systems that force smart people to do dumb things. There you go. Um, so, yeah. I, but I, I wanted to push on this one yep. just because as you know, and, and, and folks who listen to the first season of, of Class Disrupted will know, grading is like my bugaboo. It's the one that I got the most uh, angry and animated about and, and that my mom always appears in these episodes uh, as, as my foil. But the um, I, but I think it's a really important issue because the grading policy, it seems, wouldn't just solve the problems in the day-to-day -day classroom experience, but it would also help with the communication and translation yes. part to the parents so that yes. there wouldn't be outright rebellion yes. also. Yeah, fair. I think that's right. All right, let's get to number four. All right, then. number four. Okay, um, I'm going to call this one. I'm looking for active learning experiences. All right. And um, I think one of the benefits of the pandemic, if we really look at what was going on, is we saw a significant number of community organizations and and community places 
um, step up and step in to support our students. You know, as schoolhouses were closing across the, the country and parents were doing their best, they were seeking opportunities for their kids to keep learning and growing and developing. There's a ton of community groups that stepped up and, and filled really important roles. And I think one common element to what they did is they they provided really engaging, active learning experiences. And, you know, this is what a lot of these groups do and do incredibly well. They do it generally after school and on the weekends because kids are captive, you know, in their school buildings during the day. But I think two beautiful things out of this. One, just reminding us that we always talk about, you know, porous schoolhouse walls and like breaking down the barriers between the school and the community and if this isn't the, the reminder and the invitation to really make that happen, I don't know what is. And two, that there's so many better ways for kids to be learning in a really active, engaged way than sort of sitting at a desk, paper, pencil, book. Um, and there's all these assets that live in our community that we are not incorporating and integrating into the day-to-day -day schooling experience for kids. And it's a huge missed opportunity. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I, one of the things I've been gratified out of the pandemic so far is that it seems like a lot of these community organizations you referenced that have stepped up and created these micro-schooling environments in places like Boston and Cleveland mm -hmm. and so forth are going to continue to do that. Right. Uh, which I think is tremendous because it'll bring people out of the classroom in many cases, create learning opportunities that count yep. uh, regardless of where they occur. But as I'm looking at the landscape, Diane, uh, where, where, where are you going shopping for your off-the-shelf uh, software or tool technology for this? <laughs> well, I think what I knew you were going to ask me that. Um, <laughs> and, and we should go back to the, the if they will count because I okay. think that's, we'll yep. get pick that up on the next one. But um this is this has got to be local, I think. And so um, what's interesting is I do wonder if there's a way to think about facilitating this in local communities and contexts. But this really does. This is where education truly is local and that there are, you know, groups and assets and people in local communities that have to be able to work together. And I think, again, that presents a huge opportunity. I've been thinking a lot about this because we have a, as you know, um, um, expeditions part of our, our program and curriculum. So our kids spend eight weeks out of the year in the community. And um, as I think about expanding that even more, I'm like, wow, this is an opportunity for us to not only partner with, but make investments in local groups and local organizations, many of them led by amazing people of color and helping them, you know, scale to a place where they really can partner with us and engage with us. There's like a huge mutual benefit opportunity here. Mm -hmm. um, but I do think that it is, it is local, even the Boys and Girls Club who have really stepped up during the pandemic, yeah. they are still a very local organization. So national brand, but really operating on a local a local scale. No, that makes sense. I, one of the things that I'm excited about in this area is um, uh, big picture learning developed in Blaze, for example, which uh, helps make these connections of what are the internship opportunities in mm -hmm. your local community uh, and things of that nature for just as one example. Uh, whoyouknow.org, my colleague, Julia Freeland Fisher and, and at the Christensen Institute, they've maintained a lot of these uh, software tools that help with social capital more generally. But it turns out a lot of these 
are these community-based organizations, right? And connecting into often it's career pathing, but I don't think it has to be um, uh, opportunities in the community. So I, I do think that they're like, if, if, if number one, we were like, yeah, we've got that one. Number two, we were like, not really at all. Number three, not really at all. Uh, this one, I feel like there is some traction on it. What, what I'm, what I'm worried about is I guess that how do we keep the momentum as we come out of the pandemic? Because what I guess I'm most worried about is like, there aren't funding streams that are dedicated to this uh, in in schooling and and the way we fund schools, as you know, prioritizes seat time. And so I don't know, like how, how will we keep that ecosystem thriving? Well, I'm going to take that one and then raise you into the fifth, fifth thing on my list. I think the way, so what's interesting is you're right. There's not dedicated funding streams, but for the next three years, there, there is quite a bit of money flowing into school systems to fund the non-traditional, not sort of after school, out of school sort of things. And so I think it would be interesting for school leaders. Certainly I'm thinking about how to leverage those monies over the next couple of years. Now we've got a cliff problem that we've got to deal with. Um, so I think we have to invest wisely. Right. We don't um, want peers to nowhere. Capacity. We want bridges to somewhere. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and, uh, but I do think that there's an opportunity there that exists. Perfect. Uh, should we hit number five on your yeah, list? Yeah, because number five for me sort of brings all this together and makes it possible. I'm not sure I'm going to win a lot of friends on this one, but um, what I'm shopping for is I'm going to call it a learning platform. And, you know, all the people out there are going to be like, oh, LMSs, we've got all these LMSs. No, no, they're not good. They're just not good. Okay. Say more. Because you're right. You're, you know, there's probably a bunch of people outside this room that are not going to be excited (laughs) about that. Um. Here's my experience as someone who's leading schools, running schools, in schools. Um, They're very rudimentary in nature. They weren't actually designed um, with the the student experience in mind at the center. Well, actually, we can pause there for a moment, right? Because they are, these are an outgrowth, A, of higher ed. And they were... course management systems, not learning management systems, right? right LMS which, was a good brand, right. but not necessarily indicative of what they actually did. Which means they're about adults and they're not about kids. Um, and so what's really missing from them, I think we saw this across the board in the pandemic because schools and systems that didn't have these before had to implement them in some sort of way, shape or form because everyone's out of the building and how are you keeping in contact and whatnot. And what we saw and heard, if anyone was listening from kids and parents is a very incoherent, a very unfriendly, um, a very confusing sort of system that, that doesn't actually make a lot of sense from my seat and where I sit. And so I think, what I want in a learning platform or system is first, it has to be designed starting from what is the student experience and what we need to be aiming for, you know, higher ed might be different, but when we're talking about developing humans and developing skills, we need to create a coherent experience for that student. They should not be going to six different adults a day who have totally different systems that they have to manage and navigate and learn. They should have a coherent experience where the friction that is caused by having to switch like norms and rules and platforms and tools and all of that is eliminated. 
um, so that they can really deeply focus on the learning and the development, um, that that learning and development is consistent across the experiences. Um, there is a common vocabulary. There is a common set of skills that you're building over time. Um, that And that's what a the system needs to be thinking about and oriented to. And I think there's a whole bunch of things that happen in a learning platform when you begin by designing from that perspective. Yeah, I, so I, I, I love so much of what you just said and my brain is firing in a bunch of different directions. Um, it occurs to me that that coherence piece though, and I just wanna center on that for a moment, um, was m one of the most frustrating parts of the learning yeah. experience for people during the pandemic of just jumping, trying to deal with logins, deal with disparate systems, deal with, you know, 10 ways to log into, you know, different things and so forth. But what's interesting about it is I would say the lack of coherence is one of the biggest reasons like reading scores and, and achievement is the way it is in this country even before the pandemic, like the lack of synergy between different courses, creating more interdisciplinary experiences that speak together, uh, codifying so that you're moving coherently and allow for deeper learning as opposed to a fragmented learning experience of jumping across mm -hmm. seven different periods and so forth. Like, mm -hmm. I, I think that actually uh, what we experienced is an outgrowth of something much deeper in a lot of school systems uh, that, that we need to un unpack. I, I couldn't agree more. And what I think happened was it just got brought home. Yes. And so what our students are experiencing every day in their reality suddenly is laid bare. And and parents now are having to try and they're like, this is insane. This doesn't make any sense. What is happening here? Right. And kids are like, yeah, welcome to my world. Like this is what I do every day, right? <laughs> right. Um I just do it in person before now we're, right, we're you trying have to, to see all my exactly. frustrations and some of them think it's even better because they're like look i can't really walk out of a classroom but i can shut my camera <laughs> off and like walk out of your virtual room right yep. so i mean we have to listen to them and hear what they're telling us yeah so. no i think seeing what people do with their time is one of the most important understandings of motivation so, something you said on that front though i think is interesting where you said Maybe higher ed is different. I, I actually don't think it is all that different. Um, uh, and I'm glad you said that because I was sort of cutting them some slack. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. Probably but, don't uh, deserve you know, it. I don't think they deserve <laughs> it. Um, but uh, for those that don't know, Diane and I sit on the board of uh, the Minerva University. Yes. Um, because it's newly accredited, which yes. is exciting. Uh and what's interesting about that experience, and, and you get to live it because your son is going to be a sophomore. Um, yes. Uh, they have it's not just the active learning platform that creates the class experience but it's the way that they have thoughtfully categorized and, and been super intentional about the skills that you are building exactly. between all of the learning experiences regardless of what the content or domain is it's reinforcing these uh th these skills that are commonly understood and defined across all learning experiences exactly i think that's a really nice segue into how i i think my whole list sort of ties together. Okay, and so if we have a learning platform that does what we're describing, it, it has the ability to um, have an infrastructure around the most important skills that our kids, uh, uh, I, let's call it, call it a common assessment system that 
that translates across subject areas, across years in school, that kids are developing these skills over time and over years, and that there's consistency and growth in that. It has the ability to track that and to facilitate that. It has the ability to integrate these active learning experiences and give credit and acknowledge them and you know integrate them into the experience. And quite frankly, it has the grading policy that we're talking about, yes, the ability to, to do that. And oh, by the way, it's made possible if everyone has a one-to-one -one device and bandwidth everywhere they go. And so there is a, 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 a method, method to, your to my madness, to my, my <laughs> People list. People would be gratified to hear that. <laughs> I, I want to pick on just, you know, so that's your shopping list. Yes. I, I, as we sort of wrap up our time and, and I'll give you all a little bit of inside baseball. Also, we, we try to get our episodes to be like 30 minutes because that's the average commute time. Yo. It's a totally meaningless statistic. Actually, it turns out in the pandemic because people aren't commuting, but we, we stuck to that old <laughs> relic. Um, uh, but as a result, we've got about 10 minutes left. So I have two things that, uh, I, I want to sort of pick on. One is, Something that wasn't on your shopping list. Oh, it was. I didn't hear like traditional curriculum around oh. math and science and and ELA and social studies and things of that nature. Hmm. What's going on there? Why not? Oh, probing. All right, didn't even come to mind. So now I'm so reflecting. Yeah. I'm thinking, why not? And here's what's coming. Here's here's what I think the reasons are. I think there's a few. One, look whatever curriculum we were going to use or buy or what we did in the last 18 months, really, I, I you know, I, I, so it, that, that's not on the top of my list right now for that reason. Number one, number two, I am deeply focused on returning teachers and students to in-person learning and moving in that direction. Um, and I'm really focused on the relationships and the culture and the community and the connection that has been so lost and broken during the pandemic. And so as I think about those very precious sort of professional development time and whatnot at the start of the year, that's where I'm putting my energy. And so if you're going to bring in a new curriculum, you got to put a whole, you have to invest everything in that. So this is not the moment to be doing that. And I think that um, my observation is people are not only tired and burnt out um, from what they've been through, but there's, they're, you know, Delta is making them afraid. Yeah. And um, so we're just grappling with a lot of that right now. And, and when you take on a new curriculum, you have to be in a good space to do that. Um, and so it's not on my list right at the moment. And then, Michael, I, I would be remiss to say that, and maybe we'll have a longer conversation about this, but, you know, if you're a teacher in this country right now, you're getting a lot of messages about like what you're allowed to teach and what you're not allowed mm -hmm. to teach and what you're allowed to say and what you're not allowed mm -hmm. to say. And, um, you know, it's an uncomfortable place to be in. Yeah, no, no, that's totally fair. Let's, let's come back to that one. If not today, then in a future episode, but the I, I, I want to spend another moment on why curriculum isn't on not just your list, but mm -hmm. I think a lot of people's list right yeah. now, which is something you said up front, which is when people rushed to the remote and knew online and digital was going to be a much bigger piece of what they were doing, people made those decisions. Yeah. Right. And so I don't think we're going to see as much switching as people might expect, even with the flood of dollars coming into the system from the federal government over the next right. certainly 12 months. Maybe it'll reevaluate next year. I think um, that's right. 
but I don't expect it in this one. I think that's right. Yeah. One of the thing that you you pulled off, and I'm I'm going to tease this just because I know that your head is here a little bit, and this will be a future episode. But the human capital, you talked about professional development for teachers, you talked about exhaustion. A lot of what you're talking about is sort of restorative in nature in some ways, like trying to bring energy back in. Where are teachers in all of this uh, right now at this moment? Um, And how do they factor into a lot of these uh, Uh, the the shopping list, if you will. So I think a lot of teachers, and I'm going to add into the group, uh, into that bucket, a group that hasn't really gotten any attention or love and deserves a lot of it, which is school leaders, quite Mm. frankly, are the vast majority of them are so excited and happy to be back with kids and trying to make this work and move forward. And so I don't want to lose sight of that. And the reality is um, for the last couple of weeks, Uh, We and everyone else I know who runs a system have had um, sort of daily resignations. Daily resignations of teachers. And what I think we're seeing from the conversations we're having and whatnot is for some people, for for some of them, the the closer it gets to actually the reality of going back, that fear is really taking over and they can't imagine themselves doing that again. Um, and the other reality, which is, as you said, a lot of money has flooded into the system. A lot of it is for tutoring and supports. And, and so there are a number of job opportunities that don't normally exist for teachers where they can go do meaningful work in much more flexible ways, often at home, et cetera. And so that thing that often ties them is not there anymore. There's opportunity. And so we, we are seeing that happening and uh, we, we are not the only ones, I can assure you of that. Um, and so I think that over the next few weeks, we're going to see a number of systems that this is not normal teacher shortage stuff. This is like profoundly of this moment. And I think it's going to really impact how people are able to operate their schools. It's just, I mean, it's a super interesting moment. We, we, we talked about this a little bit of what's the job of teacher in the last season, right? And And some of the rules around teaching and expectations and things of that nature it's interesting because there's a viable alternative right right now in 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 effect in some ways it's not too dissimilar from i think what a lot of employers are seeing across the Mm -hmm. country as you know i spend most of my time with guild education and this is a dynamic that when we partner with employers creating a more attractive place for people to work right with opportunity that, that that is upward opportunity for them that will lift their families uh, is something big on their minds. Um, and we're seeing this across the country right now. And it's not, it, it's, it's not just the fact that, you know, there was, uh, uh, you know, more unemployment insurance out there, for example, it's right. something deeper it is and deeper. more structural, I think. It is and, and, and the teacher dynamic, it sounds like is different in certain respects, but in some ways there's overlap. I think there's overlap. And again, let me go back to the school leaders and the systems leaders, because if, for those folks who are tracking this, mm-hmm. You know, we're, a lot of those folks are, are leaving too. Well, so double click on that because, I mean, I remember and I, this is true at the university level as well. Yeah. A lot of presidents have been saying it's been an exhausting 18 months. I'm yeah. out. Yeah. And um, these are mission driven folks who are deeply committed to the work and it's very painful for them to leave. And what I'm noticing, especially at the leadership level, is there's no way for them to succeed. 
and would you feel completely set up for failure? I mean, they're, everyone's mad at them. Yeah. No one is happy. And it's exhausting. I, I can tell you, I have worked harder in the last 18 months than I've ever worked in my life. And I am never accused of not being a hard worker. And when you're doing that and you feel like you're failing every day and you've got people yelling at you and calling you names and going to board meetings and saying you should be, you know, Stuff. fired. Yeah. Like at some point you're like, ah, enough's enough. And I, I think that's real. Yeah. I mean, that's going to be such an interesting dynamic through all this because like we said, like it, 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 things are not back to normal as I think a lot of people had hoped even if schools do uh, are, in, although there was just results from Ed Week this morning showing that a significantly number, higher number are going to hybrid learning for next year. Uh, so I, we'll have to track that over time. But, you know, these at, at minimum, I think a lot of the quarantining and periods of time where people are remote again will be a part of the equation and it's going it, to create a lot more stress. We've got about 10 more conversations to have. It looks like over the next few months because there's a whole big one about attendance um that is coming attendance sure. is going to be well so right teacher shortage and if there's the student shortage the dynamics could be disrupted in some really interesting ways and create some interesting opportunities and so maybe we'll leave it there and thank you all for joining us live at asu gsv summit for class disrupted mm-hmm.